You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs from our network of foreign correspondents. I'm Patrick Smith. On our podcast this week, from Berlin, Derek Scali on France's out-of-working-hours clampdown on emails and on German fears that online fictional stories may be used to influence the country's looming elections and how an important court case against Facebook may play into that. And Michael Jansen, our Middle East correspondent on the prospects for peace in Syria in 2017 in the wake of the fall of Aleppo and on exactly who is fighting whom. From January the 1st, new law came into force in France, which allows workers to switch off their email when they're off. Companies with more than 50 employees are required to agree a code of practice with employees. It's supposed to help reduce stress levels and improve work-life balance. Such requirements are not new in big German companies. Derek Scali, I believe Daimler has had an email closed-down policy for some years. Does it work, and how is the idea viewed there? Yes, um, Daimler, and actually the first people to do it were a few years ago, it was Volkswagen. Uh, Volkswagen is, is a, has a very strong union there, and because of the union influence, they were the first company in Germany, I think it's about three years ago now, to introduce a, a, a sort of a shut-off in the, in the servers, so that even if you have a, a, a BlackBerry or a, an iPhone for work, that actually you, you do not get emails uh, after an hour after you finish and up to an hour before you start again in the morning. Uh, so they would match your email traffic with your, uh, with your working schedule and they would actually block access to all emails from the company servers, even on your work phone or your work laptop, until these times. And um, people I know in Volkswagen said it has worked out very well. That if you actually cannot see the emails, you cannot be thinking about what you should or shouldn't be doing. And it was quite a clean technical solution because, of course, it's all right to say, oh, well, you, you, you are allowed to not deal with emails and not deal with work after uh, working hours. But if you see this stuff coming in, of course, the temptation is there uh, just before you go to bed, just send one or two emails and suddenly you're working for another hour. So Volkswagen was the first and Daimler followed, but they came up with this. They didn't have a statutory system. as a, In France, it's coming from above. It's, it's the companies themselves, the unions and the companies. They actually imposed a technical um, break uh, on this to actually interrupt the email flow. And they say that has worked quite well. I haven't heard of any other companies introducing it. I think it's only in larger companies that it would be effective, uh, particularly where unions um, have work councils where they can basically tell the company, this is what we're doing, uh, otherwise you have a problem. Uh, Germany is taking a different approach to France, a non-statutory approach, uh, and so far of a limited nature. But um, from what I know of people, uh, they say it is good for the work-life balance. I say it sounds very tempting, but I think that uh, journalists can dream on. There's no way that our employers are (laughs) going to agree to this. I've I've seen other other methods of controlling the email tyranny. Um, Some companies uh, do complete holiday deletions. In other words, once you're off on on leave, the, the emails are deleted automatically. And one suggestion I saw was a ban on on uh, reply to all emails, which often deluge unaffected workers with unnecessary reading. Yes, I mean the problem is that uh, uh, email has just become sort of it's like a, it's like a curse in those Japanese films, and you, the more people you pass it on to, the better you'll the better you are and the more protected you are. But of course, if you are the uh, not just the, the perpetrator, but if you are the, the victim here and you are getting all these emails, uh, it's, it's a disaster. I haven't heard of Germany actually imposing that. I can't imagine how you would, uh, it, how, how the state would intervene in, in such cases. But it certainly is worth the thought. I know I uh, reply all is one of those buttons I, I, I dread pushing. 
Yeah. Well, far more important perhaps is in the war against the new digital tyranny is the beginnings of discussion in Germany about how to put manners on organisations like Facebook, not least as, as its elections loom. And there were two particular stories uh, that Facebook ran over, over the Christmas period. Uh, one about a man who opened fire in a pizza restaurant in Washington, D.C., uh, after become, becoming convinced that fake news reports... Uh, sorry, after being convinced by fake news reports that it was used for child sex abuse and Pakistan's defence minister apparently read an article on Facebook uh, as a genuine threat of a preemptive nuclear strike and took to Twitter to warn Israel that Pakistan is a nuclear state too. Uh, politicians are worried by this fake news deluge. Um, in, in Germany, they've actually been quite vociferous. Yes, indeed. Um, Germany has been warning Facebook for years now. Um, even uh, Chancellor Merkel personally uh, sat beside Mark Zuckerberg, I think it was two years ago, at a dinner uh, in the US. And she said, what are you doing about all of this um, racism and xenophobia? Fake news wasn't such a, a term at that time. And he said, uh, she asked, what are you going to do about this? And he said, oh, yeah, we're looking into it. And since then, Facebook has said, yes, we take this very seriously and so on. But um, for the last year, they've been engaging, the German government has been engaging with Facebook, particularly on racist and xenophobic posts, um, because Facebook say unless they breach their community standards, they're not going to remove them. But sometimes something might not breach Facebook's community standards, but in Germany it would be a crime it would be incitement or it's uh, for distributing xenophobia. So Germany has been very frustrated in the last 12 months saying, why is Facebook sort of a, uh, it's, it's a, a law unto itself? It's sort of a, a, it's a, a judicial no man's land. And what they seem to have done now is they've run out of, they've uh, lost patience with Facebook. And they said before Christmas, we're going to legislate. We're going to legislate that unless Facebook removes problematic posts or something that's clearly fake uh, within 24 hours, uh, we will go after Facebook legally. And what they said to do this, though, they need a, a legal instance of Facebook in Germany. And until now, the problem has been Facebook International uh, is based in Dublin. So if you want to file papers on Facebook, you know, a cease and desist order, you'd have to have a lawyer in Ireland who knows where Facebook's offices are and can hand in a paper there. So if you're in Germany, it's very difficult. So what Germany wants to do is, number one, force Facebook to take things down within 24 hours, problematic posts. And number two, to set up an operation in Germany, which is more than just a, a PR office or a brass plate operation, which is what the accusation is. So these are two significant um, moves. And if if this happens, uh, Facebook will realise that uh, it sort of it'll have to uh, it'll have to up its game because um, just because it doesn't consider something problematic doesn't mean that it's legally unproblematic. And that's where we are at the moment. Well, the, Facebook has responded. Uh, to some of these concerns, with uh, Zuckerberg claiming that he's going to introduce a system a bit like Wikipedia, uh, which allows readers to flag untrue or hate stories. And and with Google, the, the company is also attempting to strip away advertising revenue from fake, fake news sites. Neither are particularly persuasive. No, because the question is, why is Facebook operating outside the law? Every country in which Facebook operates regardless of legally speaking where it's operated, Facebook is in every country in the world, and every one of these countries have their own laws. 
And if people are accessing something that is clearly xenophobic or that is incitement of violence or incitement of hatred, um, there are laws against that in every country, including in Germany. So uh, the legal eagles in the Justice Ministry here have said, we do not see why Facebook can somehow uh, meet our concerns by coming up with it of, of its own free will. Um, it, it's sort of, a, from a freedom of speech perspective, it's almost the equivalent of Facebook and these large companies choosing where they want to pay taxes. And the answer is often they pay taxes nowhere. And uh, from a freedom of speech perspective or from a incitement uh, perspective, the, the, the legal argument is, well, why are you choosing where you want to be uh, liable, which is nowhere? Uh, you are operating in Germany. You are liable in Germany. We believe you're liable in Germany, and we're the government of Germany. So it seems to be if this sort of uh, get out of jail free card that Facebook has been playing. It has been the judge and jury until to now on what what is or isn't problematic. And now the government seems to be intervening and saying we want, uh, we believe we have the final say. Our court, courts are the final instance here, not Facebook, not its community standards, and not any. Um, sort of uh, free uh, uh, new systems that it brings in to flag problematic posts. Importantly, I think here there's also an international discussion going on about the idea that uh, Facebook and social media sites are simply social media platforms that are are neutral uh, and don't have a duty of care. And that idea of importing duty of care into the into the digital world into the the social media space is really it's very important uh, here as much as in America and and in Germany. Yes, but the question is: Are they publishers? Are they not publishers? That's a bit of a legal rabbit hole. Um, you can you can you know get two lawyers together, you get three opinions on that. What's interesting is in 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 Austria before Christmas. And the Green Party leader there uh, secured an injunction against Facebook because people were spreading fake news about her online. And her lawyer said, we're not interested in this. Is it a publisher? Is it a platform? Even if it was only a platform, there is a legal obligation there. It is a lower legal obligation than if you were technically a publisher like a newspaper. But Facebook still has obligations, even if it's just a technical electronic bulletin board. And these obligations, it is not even meeting these obligations. So the lawyers for the Greens in Austria have said that actually, even if they, if we adopt the lowest, even if we agree with Facebook and we say they're just an electronic bulletin board, that means they still have of legal obligations and they need to meet these legal obligations. And um, we're going to have a very interesting case here in Germany soon, starting next month. Um, over Christmas, there was a case involving uh, a homeless man who was uh, three or four asylum seekers tried to set fire to him, allegedly tried to set fire to him in in a bench of a uh, Berlin uh, underground station while he slept. And uh, this this happened, and it was a huge shock. And, and the case, the criminal case against these young men is proceeding. But on Facebook, somebody put a picture of, of a man who posted, an asylum seeker who posted for a selfie with Marco, uh, during the summer of 2015. And they said, this is one of the men who tried to set fire to the man in the Berlin train station. This isn't the case. It's a complete lie. It's a fake news, but it was spread several hundred times. And this, this man, this asylum seeker, is now taking a lawyer. And this lawyer is taking on Facebook saying, you are spreading vicious, vicious rumors uh, which have a huge, serious effect on, on real people. And uh, it's time that we actually in, bring the courts in here. So we're going to have a, a, an interesting debate between Facebook and this asylum seeker and his legal counsel and a German court. And that German court will have to decide 
what legal responsibilities does Facebook have, what moral responsibilities does it have, and what intervention possibilities does the German state have to actually prevent Facebook um, acting as a distribution network for fake news and for hate speech. Thank you, Derek. After this short break, I'll talk to Michael Johnson about a shift in the balance of forces in Syria. Hi, my name's Hugh Linehan, and I just wanted to take a few seconds to tell you about the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. Every week I'm joined by our own expert analysts along with elected politicians and people who just have interesting political ideas. If you're interested in how the system works, how it could be made better, and what effects politics really has on your life, join me every Wednesday for Inside Politics. You can find it on irishtimes.com slash podcasts or on your preferred podcast app. Syria's war has killed hundreds of thousands of people, displaced about half the country's pre-war population of 22 million, and left its territory divided into zones controlled by the government, armed rebels and jihadi groups. Rebels controlling the city of Aleppo succumbed at the end of 2016. A ceasefire appears to be holding there, and the formerly rebel-held eastern quarters are now abandoned wastelands. Many commentators say Aleppo was a critical tipping point for the survival of the Assad regime. To find out if this really is a decisive shift in the balance of forces, I spoke to our Middle East correspondent, Michael Jansen. Aleppo represents a turning point in terms of morale, in terms of strategic territory, in terms of um, the general impression that Syrians have of what's going on in their country. And a lot of Syrians were very happy to see the end of the... Uh, siege of eastern Aleppo, and they also uh, feel that the army has had its morale boosted, and the morale of the insurgents has been uh, reduced. And also, the eastern Aleppo was evacuated, and uh, the insurgents were forced to withdraw without making a deal with the government. And at, at this point in time, the civilians are actually going back into eastern Aleppo, and the government has put forward a plan for rebuilding basic infrastructure like schools, hospitals, roads, and also putting back the electricity and the water services, and also to reconnect the train uh, line with uh, Damascus. Now, the ceasefire that was agreed... um does appear to be holding largely, but there has been some violence, not least the attacks on the water supply to Damascus and the attempts to take back control of the water supply, indeed. Uh, could, the, could that violence derail uh, peace talks, which are supposed to be held in, in Astana, the capital of Kazakhstan? Uh, it could. Um, I think a lot of people are more committed to the ceasefire than those who are trying to uh, derail it. The people who are trying to derail it are mostly connected with al-Qaeda, and that is um, the former Jabhat al-Nusra, which is now calling itself Jabhat Fatah al-Sham, and also Ahrar al-Sham, which is its close ally. These are the, the forces on the ground which are trying to derail things. Whether they'll get away with it or not, it's not clear. Um, and... These talks that are supposed to be coming up, what, what do you think are their prospects? It's very difficult to say. If, if they t- come off and if 
um, large numbers of groups decide to go uh, from the, the armed groups. And also, if the Saudi-based opposition higher negotiation committee decides to go, then there may be some prospect for progress. And they all will have to drop their preconditions. The government has said it's prepared to go into the talks without preconditions. The Saudi-based opposition says that Assad has to go before a transition period begins. And uh, the Russians insist that Assad will stay through the transition period and until a government is formed. And the government uh, which they want to form will be a unity government, which is a concession to the Assad demand, which he says he wants a unity government, not a transition government which would mean that some members of his particular government would stay, the Ba'ath Party, whereas there would be opposition members of a new government. Uh, he has said over the course of the weekend that he's prepared to negotiate on everything, and he was asked if that included his position as president. He said, yes, but my position is linked to the Constitution. What, what does he mean by that, and is that a genuine offer? I think it's a genuine offer in the sense that this unity government will be drawing up a new constitution in preparation for elections. So this new constitution will set the guidelines for how governance is supposed to take place. And in this new constitution, there will be provisions for elections. And Assad would like to stand again for elections. So this is where this would come in. Um, he said the Syrian people should be the in charge of deciding who is going to govern them, not outside powers. Syria's various rebel forces are disparate. The al-Nusra Front, the strongest of them, is connected to al-Qaeda and has been gaining ground on Islamic State, which has been losing territory in Syria and Iraq. Islamic State still holds the city of Raqqa, however, and this city appears likely to fall to Kurdish forces with American backing. I asked Michael how problematic that might be. It will be very problematical because the population of Raqqa is mainly Sunni Arab and the Kurds are Kurds, so they are ethnically different. And the population of Raqqa is also rather conservative, whereas the Kurds who are going to fight for Raqqa's liberation are leftists. And uh, they will also the Kurds themselves have also said that they are reluctant to do this job because they know that they will be fighting in a city where they will not be welcome. And the people of Raqqa have um, expressed their concern and their fears over the liberators. And also, uh, presumably, the, the Turks, who are deeply opposed to extension of, of, of Kurdish influence, uh, will be will be worried that their ostensible allies here uh, take over the city. Well, they will, and the Kurds uh, will be resisted by the Turks. The Turks have already bombed this Kurdish group, and um, they have also been taking this town of El Bab in order to prevent the Kurdish groups from moving along the border and taking control of the border between Syria and um, Turkey. And in fact, in one of the latest um, uh, very interesting developments is that Al-Bab, the 
Russians have been bombing it on behalf of the Turks. Now, the Russians and the Turks have been barely speaking to each other until recently. And and the formation of some kind of informal uh, Turkish-Russian alliance is quite a significant shift in, in the balance of forces in, in, the, in the area. Yes, it is. And it will be even more important when it comes to dealing with the northwestern province of Idlib, where Nusra is the strongest party, uh, because the Turks control the border. And if the money and the fighters and the guns no longer cross the border, then Nusra will not be able to hold on to Idlib province, especially if the Russians and the Iranians get together and uh, mount a major operation. Overall, then, what we're seeing is quite a significant shift in favor of those who would defend the status quo in, in, in Damascus, in, in effect. Does that not suggest, actually, that the, the, the Assad regime might not have an interest in, in talking, in, in the peace talks that are underway, if the military situation on the ground seems to be favoring them so, so much? Uh, the, I think the Assad regime has a great interest in getting talks started because they need money, they need fuel, they need uh, food supplies. Uh, the harvests have failed because of the war and because of weather conditions. And the Assad regime cannot continue with the same kind of governance it has exerted over the past six years, um, simply because of the situation on the, in terms of the economy, in terms of the livelihood of the people. So it needs peace. And the people themselves are tired of this war. And I think the small arm groups are also tired, and they are making deals with the government to hand in their weapons and to evacuate the cities. And in fact, in some places, people are returning, you're saying, in, in, in Aleppo. And, in Aleppo, people are returning. In Homs, a lot of people have returned to the old city, which is being rebuilt. Um, the government is doing its best to rebuild where they can manage to do so. And can people do that with confidence that the regime is not going to lock them up or, or, or kill them or torture them? Well, the, the, the regime has got many people in prison. Um, so far, people who have been leaving under these reconciliation deals have not ended up in prison. I went to see some of them when I was last in Syria in a small town south of Damascus, and they were put into a small development of prefab houses, uh, which was under the watchful eye of the United Nations. The houses were built by UNDP, and there was a permanent presence of the Syrian Arab Red Crescent there and the Red Cross. And um, the, the, these were people who had asked for amnesty, and this from a small part of Damascus. And is the, the UN is providing some kind of guarantee of that amnesty? No, is it? no, no guarantee. But observers? Uh, no, the UN built the, the, the area. Right. And there is also, next to this small development, there's a big development for displaced Syrians going up there. And this town has got uh, manufacturing and so on, so people are getting employment. But the majority of people from this particular suburb, which was evacuated in 
August, went elsewhere, wherever they wanted to go. It was only the fighters and their families which were taken to this one place. And as I say, they're not imprisoned. The, the fighters who wanted to go to join Nusra, they went in buses, about 700 of them, with their families. I mean, the whole group was 700. Thank you very much, Michael. Thanks to Michael Jansen and Derek Scally, to sound engineer Rob O'Sullivan and our producer Declan Conlon, I'm Patrick Smith. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud and Stitcher or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcast. Music